the rain stopped when I was coming in this morning. It was pouring down rain. Y'all got sunlight, so I guess God loves y'all more than he loves me. Uh, I was drenching wet. It is great to see you in the house of God. Here at Chapel, we are a, a church that wants to see an awakening and empowering of God's people to be who God, God has called them to be. And some of you may have heard uh, that tongue interpretation during worship and that transition. If you don't know what that is, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, Paul very clearly describes what the New Testament church should look like. And one of those things he says in there is a tongue, which is a heavenly language. We call it here a spiritual language where God gives a message prophetically through them. Then there's an interpretation. And that's the way it's done in order. And that's what that was. So if you have any questions about that, feel free to call us, let us know. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. And as you're turning there, I don't know about you, but with teenagers at our house, I'm starting to realize how new things become old things and old things become new. What that means is there'll be music that I'll listen to in the car, like I'll throw in some old throwback stuff in the 80s or something like that, and the kids will be like, how'd you know that song? I'm like, what do you mean, how'd I know that song? Like, I remember dad listened to this song. They said, no, that's like a big song right now. It's like all over TikTok. And I'm like, well, TikTok's of the devil and communist China. Why are you watching TikTok? <laughs> but like they, lo- and the, like they love a song that's from the 80s. And then you see these teenagers that their parents don't love them and let them get mullets. And I'm like, that's from the 80s. And if you saw pictures of your parents with mullets, you probably wouldn't get one either. And you started to see all these things. And one of the things in the last couple of years that that has been evident is some of the trends that were cool when we were younger have now become trends again. And one of them is Bob Ross. So if you throw Bob Ross up there. Bob Ross, also known as the Air Force veteran, Afro-wearing hippie, is now back in trend. And if you remember Bob Ross back in the day, PBS, public television, that whole nine, he hosted a show on there. This show became a pretty popular ordeal. And, and later on, the show is even more popular now with YouTube and younger people watching it. And he just had this amazing ability to, to capture people's hearts and just bring peace through his paintings, through his, his words. Here's some of his quotes. He says, let's build a happy little cloud. Let's build some happy little trees. There's nothing wrong with having a tree as a friend. And all the lonely people said, amen. We don't make mistakes. We just have happy accidents unless you have toddlers who are being potty trained. That's a crooked tree. We will send him to Washington. That's my favorite. Go out on a limb. That's where the fruit is. But here's one of my favorites. It's in painting, you have unlimited power. You have the ability to move mountains. You can bend rivers. But when I get home, the only thing I have power over is the garbage. And so what's interesting about his painting is if you turn on the beginning, like if you go to YouTube now and you turn on the beginning, he starts out on this canvas like that. It just looks like a bunch of marks, smudges and smears and all these things that make absolutely no sense. And you're wondering, how is he going to turn this into this beautiful sunset or mountainscape or, or sunrise or river or all these trees he's talked about at the beginning? And it only takes a couple of minutes to realize even when he makes a mistake, he turns it into something beautiful. Even when he messes up a tree, he'll, he'll turn it into a beautiful, happy tree at some point during the painting. And what's amazing is you'll see him, all these smudges, all these marks, all these failures, these mistakes, these flaws. And by the end of the painting, it's this beautiful sunrise over the mountains. In many ways, Bob Ross has the ability to move mountains and move rivers, but God is the greatest painter of all. He could take what looks like flaws and mistakes and errors and and frustrations and smudges and smears on our reputation or our life. He could take these smudges and he turns them into something beautiful. For God is the greatest artist the world has ever seen. And his favorite canvas to paint on is you and I. 
by far, you and I. He paints his glory on the sunset and the sunrise. There's nothing better than going to the beach with your family and just seeing the pinks and oranges and reds and blues of a sunrise. There's nothing more beautiful than the stars being bright. Last night, the moon was just incredibly full and bright white. That's beautiful. It demonstrates his glory. But he paints his story of redemption on the canvas of our failures and our mistakes. He paints upon our lives something new. He turns our mistakes into happy little trees. In Luke chapter 24, it says this starting in verse 13. It says, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near. Everybody say, drew near. They weren't looking for Jesus. Jesus was looking for them, and he went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, what things? Like, I love the way Jesus asked questions like he's a six-year-old in the backseat of the car. Like, what, like he's, he knows the answer, but he's asking the questions. And they said to them, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They're at a place where they're just hopeless now. They thought all their hope was shattered and broken. And they said, yes, and besides all this, now the third day since these things happened, moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and Jesus acted as if he were going a little bit farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went went to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures? And they rose from that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were gathered with them together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. What's amazing about this scripture is in verses 3 through 6, Jesus is resurrected. He's at the tomb. He reveals himself. But what is Jesus doing the day he He resurrected. Now, if, if I'm Jesus and the day I resurrect, I'm showing up at Pontius Pilate's house like, what's up, homie? Like, I'm showing up at all the doubters, all the people. And I'm just like, what? I'd be playing tricks on them, like moving. Like one time, well, my brother was younger. I was in high school. My brother would always go to sleep like really early. And one night he went to sleep really early, like 4.30 or 5 in the afternoon. It was dark in the wintertime. And we had these glow sticks. And I broke these glow sticks and I put them all over my shirt. And I went and stood in his room, and so I'm completely missing, invisible, but the glowing marks would move, and I would say stuff like, Brandon, 
And I would move just a little bit. Brandon, and I'd move just a little bit. And he would start, he woke up, he started crying, screaming out loud. And he ran upstairs and told my dad, then I got the whooping with the belt for waking my brother up at 4.30 in the afternoon. And so I would do that if I was Jesus. I would just show up at people's house. What's up? You thought I was dead? No, nah, homie. You can't kill resurrection life. Like, I would just be talking mad trash. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus goes for a walk. Could you imagine? Like, he literally just resurrected. He could go in the middle of Jerusalem and start preaching a Billy Graham crusade. He could go anywhere he wants, and he shows up on a road to Emmaus, a seven-mile walk, like walking from here to Fame Studios, walking with two people who had already given up on him, walking with two people that had doubted him, walking with two people that didn't even recognize him. Jesus went for a walk that he spent the rest of the day meeting people right where they were. Spent time helping them see the bigger picture of Scripture and who he was and then revealing himself personally to people he loved dearly. Like, that's what Jesus did the day he was resurrected. But the question would be, why could they not recognize him? Like, these were disciples. They'd walk with Jesus. They'd eat with Jesus. They'd talk with Jesus. They'd seen Jesus, but they couldn't recognize him. They couldn't recognize their Messiah. They couldn't recognize their friend. They couldn't recognize their rabbi. They, they couldn't recognize him. And so many times we lose sight that Jesus purposely blinded people physically so he could reveal something spiritually. Jesus, every time he reveals himself in the, after the resurrection, he blinds people. They don't recognize it. Even Mary Magdalene didn't recognize Jesus. Peter didn't recognize Jesus the other Marys didn't recognize Jesus. Why? He didn't want them to see him in his physical being. He wanted to see them in his spiritual being. And I believe that's one of the reasons why in the world today we're so busy we want to see a physical Jesus. But even the resurrection Jesus was a spiritual Jesus. And I think why they couldn't see him was they were blinded. They were blinded because they put their hopes in something and it went the opposite direction. And whenever you look for something that doesn't happen you don't see the other things that are happening around you. See, they were looking for a conquering king. All the disciples, they wanted a conquering king to come conquer Jerusalem and kick out the Romans, but they got a sacrificial Messiah. They wanted a, politi a politician or a political leader, but they got a suffering, weeping prophet instead. They wanted the Lion of Judah, but they got the sacrificial Passover lamb. They wanted temporary relief of the political oppression, but he promised them resurrection life. And see, when your expectations are exceeded, sometimes it's hard to see the hope that you are given. And so Jesus spends his time doing this, and I think what's amazing is we may not understand the mystery of the resurrection, but we do know this, that the resurrection meets us right where we are. Like, I can't tell you how Jesus resurrected. I can't tell you of all the different eyewitnesses. I can't tell you how he resurrected. I can't tell you exactly what happened inside that tomb. I can't tell you how he, his breath came back into his body. But I can tell you this, that the resurrection meets people right exactly where they are. Some of the people, he would meet them right there at the empty tomb. Mary and some of the other disciples, he met them right at the tomb. They were waiting for him, and he met them right there. Thomas he met in the upper room, even though he was doubting. These two disciples, he meets them on a walk as they're walking away from Jerusalem. 
They're walking away from their calling. They're walking away from their friends. They're walking away from their purpose. And Jesus decides to meet them right where they are. They're walking away from all the promises Jesus gave them. These aren't people that are hope-filled and faith-filled. These aren't people that are going the right direction. They're actually going the wrong direction. Instead of going to Jerusalem, they're walking seven miles in the opposite direction. These are people God had chosen and called to be disciples to follow him. And they've already given up so quickly and so easily. They're people that had a purpose. They've given up on their purpose. And many of us, that should be encouraging. That maybe you, this is your first time here in a long time. And you think, well, maybe Jesus isn't drawing near to me. These two disciples, Cleopas and his friend, were walking the opposite direction. Jesus doesn't show up to Peter first. Peter was faithful. He didn't show up to John, the beloved. He was faithful. He shows up in the lives of the people that aren't even pursuing him. See, the resurrection has this power to meet you right where you are, regardless where you are. For some of you, he meets at the altar. For some of us, he met at a camp meeting. For some of us, he met at a Billy Graham crusade. For some of us, we met, I met him on the carpet of a basement floor of my in-law's house. For my pastor, he met right there in a prison cell in Dallas-Fort Worth jail. It doesn't matter where you're at. The resurrection is not restricted by a grave. It's not restricted by circumstances. It's not restricted by your reputation or your shame. The resurrection meets you right where you are. Touch your neighbor and say, right where you are. You can be in the White House and the resurrection will meet you there. You can be in the jailhouse and the resurrection will meet you there. You can be in India, Ukraine, or even Florence, Alabama, and the resurrection will meet you right where you are. Now, you may not recognize the resurrection, but it still meets you exactly where you are. The resurrection starts walking side by side with two people going the wrong direction. And he begins asking them these questions. They can't recognize it. I think they can't recognize them, too, is because they're so hopeless and broken. It says they look sad. It even says, but we had hoped that he had been the Messiah to deliver us. And I don't know about you, but the times that you're the most broken are the times it's hard to see the light. The times when your heart is broken, it's hard to see any hope for tomorrow. You know, that's what we call depression. Depression is when you can't see anything good because all you can see is the bad. And here are these two disciples, probably with, with, with depression, they can't see the good of anything. They've even heard, hey, we heard he resurrected. We even sent some people to go check it out, and it was exactly like they said it was going to be. The tomb was empty, he wasn't there, but they're still hopeless. Why? Sometimes we get so focused on the losses, we can't see the gains. Sometimes we get so focused on death, we can't see the resurrection. And Jesus is walking with trying to show them, hey, look, I'm here. Hey, you're still looking at the tomb, but the resurrection life is here. Sometimes it's the smudges in life. Sometimes when you get so in the pain and get so focused on the smudges that you lose sight of the bigger picture. You get so focused on one flaw in a painting, you lose sight of the beauty of the entire painting. And you don't realize that God will use the contrast of your messes and the contrast of your failures to show you the glory of his mercy and his forgiveness. And when he does it, you start to see the beauty of the bigger picture that the resurrection is trying to bring to you. But Jesus doesn't just stop there by meeting them there. He tries to show them the bigger picture. And Bob Ross said it this way, it's hard to see the big picture when you're too close. So take a step back and look. Sometimes 
It's not about what God has given us, it's about what we see. And sometimes we can be so myopic looking at one season of our life or one mistake in our life or one thing we've grabbed a hold of, one thought or one flaw or one error or one, one season, one moment. That's, that's all you can see and you lose sight of the bigger picture of God's story. You lose sight of the timeline or the narrative of God's beauty or the narrative of God's redemption. And you get so myopic and so focused, you can't see anything else. And Jesus starts with these disciples, and he wants to unpack them and help them see this bigger picture. And there's three things that make Jesus the Savior of the world. Three things that make him king historically. One is the historical fact and impact Jesus has had on the world. Like when you look at the entire world, Jesus has impacted the world more than any president, king, religious leader, political leader, anybody in the world. You cannot talk away or philosophize your way out of Jesus has the greatest impact of any person in the world. But you also cannot get away from the resurrection. There is no tomb for Jesus. Every other religion, when their leader dies, they create a shrine for their leader. There is no shrine to Jesus. There is no body to be found of Jesus. Why? Because he resurrected. And it is a historical fact that he resurrected. But three, it's the fulfillment of prophecy. That Jesus didn't just show up. He fulfilled so much prophecy. At the stations of the cross this Friday, when we were downtown, I was walking uh, RJ and then Ariana through. I told him, do you realize Good Friday is the most prophetic 24 hours in all of history, that there was probably hundreds of prophetic fulfillment that happened on this one day. There was everything from him being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, from him being buried the way he was buried, for him being crucified and killed the way he was crucified. There was over 300 plus prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his lifetime. And the Easter resurrection is the greatest prophecy ever fulfilled. Jesus told his disciples over and over and over again, look, I'm going to be handed over to the religious leaders. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be offended. I'm going to be judged. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to be killed. But don't worry. In three days, I'm going to be resurrected. I bet he said at least 15, 20 times to the disciples. Yet when it starts happening, they can't see the bigger picture because they're so focused on the death of Jesus, they forgot about the promises of Jesus. And with us, so many times, we can't focus on the death of a season. We forget about the promises of a lifetime. And you lose sight that just because you have one down moment like Peter, where he, he denies Jesus, that doesn't mean you're always going to be the denier of Jesus. He went from denier of Jesus to the one preaching the very first sermon on the day of Pentecost. It just helps them unpack this bigger picture because one of the things that I think is missing is we don't realize the bigger picture, the resurrection, gives us a new understanding of old truths. And Jesus begins to unpack all of the Old Testament to these disciples because now they have a different understanding because of the resurrection. The resurrection is the only way to interpret Scripture. You can't interpret the Old Testament or the New Testament correctly without the resurrection. And what happens is we think in our lifetimes and in the Jewish lifetime that the theme of the Bible is sin. Or the theme of the Bible is judgment. Or the theme of the Bible is death. Or the theme of the Bible is hell. The theme of the Bible isn't the law. The theme of the Bible is Jesus. From beginning to end, from the 
table of contents to the maps in the back, they all point to Jesus. The theme of the Bible is not how bad you are. The theme of the Bible is not the curse. The theme of the Bible is not the law. The theme of the Bible is not the feast. The theme of the Bible is not the tabernacle. The theme of the Bible is not the temple. The theme of the Bible is not revelations. The theme of the Bible is not prophecy. The theme of the Bible is Jesus, his life, and his resurrection. That is the theme of the Bible. And he has two disciples that he's taught for three and a half years, and he's like, you're so stupid. He literally says it. He says, oh, I'm going to read it. Oh, foolish ones, which in contemporary languages, you're stupid and slow of heart to believe all the prophecies that have been spoken. And he, he couldn't believe that. And after three and a half years, they still didn't get it. They still thought that the scriptures are talking about the law. And he said, no, no, they're talking about me. And it says this, the only way you can interpret the Bible is through the resurrection of Jesus. And in Genesis, this is how I believe he would have been saying this to them. In Genesis, Jesus is our creator and our breath of life. But in Exodus, Jesus is our Passover lamb. In Leviticus, Jesus is our high priest. In Numbers, Jesus is the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, Jesus becomes the curse for us. In Joshua, he is our victory. In Judges, he is our deliverer. In Ruth, he is our kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he's our prophet, priest, and king. In Nehemiah, he's the restorer of what the enemy has broken down in our lives. In Esther, he is our protector. In Job, he's our mediator. In Psalms, he is our shepherd and our new song. In Proverbs, he is our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, Jesus is the meaning of life. In Song of Solomon, he's the author of true love. In Isaiah, he's the suffering servant. But in Jeremiah, he's the weeping Messiah. In Ezekiel, he is the resurrection. In Daniel, he's the man in the fire with us. In Hosea, he is the faithful spouse even when we are un faithful. In Obadiah, he is our judge. In Jonah, he's our God of second chances. In Malachi, he is our healer. In Matthew, he is the king of the Jews. In Mark, he's the servant king. In Luke, he's the son of man, feeling what we feel and understanding our temptation. In John, he's the son of God. In Acts, he's the baptizer of the Holy Spirit. In Romans, he is our righteousness. In 1 Corinthians, he is our rock. In 2 Corinthians, he is our victory. In Galatians, Jesus is our freedom. In Ephesians, he is our bridegroom. In Philippians, he is our joy. In Colossians, he is our everything. In Thessalonians, he is our eternal hope. In 1 Timothy, he is our faith. In 2 Timothy, he is our stability. In Titus, he is the truth. In Philemon, he is our close friend. In Hebrews, he is our mediator and our high priest. In James, he is our faith. In 1 Peter, he's our example. In 2 Peter, he's our purity. In 1 John, he's our love. In 2 John, he's our life. In third, John, he's our motivation. In Jude, he's our foundation. And in Revelation, he is our soon coming king. Could you imagine? Could you imagine sitting down with Jesus and he starts in Genesis 1 and works you all the way to the end of the scriptures? And the whole time he's saying, you thought this is about building a tabernacle. This is about me. 
You thought this about the Hebrews wandering around the wilderness. This is about me being your guide and your leader. You thought this is about a Passover lamb you celebrate every year because you escaped Exodus. No, this is about me pulling my blood out for you so you can escape hell. And he began to walk them to show them this bigger picture. And I think all of us, just like these two disciples, we can fixate on things and hold on to things that keep us from seeing the bigger picture. Even these 300 plus prophecies, like that's the way I got saved is God revealed himself, Jesus to me supernaturally and spoke the word messianic prophecy to me almost audibly. And when I Googled it, and there's over 300 plus prophecies of who Jesus was going to be, literally from how he would be born, where he'd be born, where he would live, where he would walk, how he would teach, what he would teach, how he'd choose his disciples, how he'd live his life, how he'd be betrayed, how he would die, and how he'd be resurrected. 300 plus prophecies. Dr. Stoner, who was in Texas, who's a probability statistics professor, and he said, I'm going to try to figure out what's the probability of one man fulfilling all 300 plus prophecies. So he had his whole research team get together. They had 300 plus prophecies. You have the timelines of when it was supposed to happen. And they came up with this number. That the number, they couldn't do it for 300 prophecies, so they did it for just eight prophecies. So eight out of the 300. Not the full 300, just eight. And the number was, they came up with that number, one into the 10 to the 17th power. That's 10 followed by 17 zeros. One man has 10 to the 17th power chance of fulfilling just eight of these prophecies. And so they could, that really isn't a, a foreseeable number because most of us don't understand those type of numbers. And so they came up with this illustration. He said, if you were to take 10 to the 17th power of silver dollars and take one of them, just one, and you paint it red, and you take them and you put them over the state of Texas and spread them out, they would cover the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. Two feet deep. One has painted red, and you spread spread them out. A tornado comes and spreads them out all over the place. It's still two feet deep. You take a blind man and tell him you can go from border to border, from coast to coast, and you can pick one silver dollar out. The chance or the probability that blind man would pick that one silver dollar that was painted red is one to the 10 to the 17th power. Which tells me Jesus is either the Messiah or there is no Messiah ever. Which tells me if it wasn't Jesus, all of us are hopeless. But for over 2,000 years, churches have gathered, whether there's oppression, persecution or not, to celebrate the resurrection because it proved that Jesus is the one in the 10 to the 17th power. And these two disciples, they're seeing this Bible study. Could you imagine? Jesus, the day he's resurrected, has a Bible study. Like, it shows us that the Word of God is just as powerful as the Spirit of God because Jesus could have showed up and did another miracle. Jesus could have showed up and had, you know, an outpour of the Holy Spirit, but he showed up and literally had a Bible study. And as they start going through the resurrection, what Jesus is trying to say is the resurrection puts everything in its proper purpose. See, the resurrection becomes the filter not just for Easter, but the filter for every day of our lives. The resurrection it tells me that it's more about going from death to life and failure to victory and all these things. That puts perspective back that no matter what happens in my life, the resurrection shows me that there's always a better day ahead. Amen. The resurrection shows me no matter how far I fall, that there's always another opportunity to rise again. It puts everything in proper perspective, which is why as believers, we should never be hopeless. 
Because no matter where you find yourself, maybe you're buried in debt. Maybe you're buried in sin. Maybe you're buried in shame. Maybe you're buried in frustrations. Maybe you're buried in doubt. Jesus can always resurrect you to something new. He sits down with his disciples. He's about to walk a little bit farther. They said, no, I want you to stay with us for just a minute. And he says, no, I need to go on. They said, no, just stay with us. And they break bread. And they eat together. It says he broke the bread and blessed it. Their eyes were opened. And they saw that it was Jesus. It says their hearts burned. It was the first time heartburn had ever been diagnosed in history. <laughs> but not heartburn from newborns or bunions. Heartburn from the Holy Spirit. Heartburn from the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit had begun to awaken them through the, the Word of God, through their circumstances, and awaken them to the hope that sat right in front of them. And their hearts burned within them, and he vanished. And they said, didn't our hearts burn within us when he began to open the Scriptures up to us? That burning heart is that awakening of the Holy Spirit to the reality of the resurrection. is not just a historical event. The resurrection is for you personally. And the resurrection is what changes everything for us and about us. And it gives my life meaning, it gives my life direction, and it gives me the opportunity to start over regardless of my circumstances. What's, what's incredible is once their eyes are awakened, they just walk seven miles, which is pretty much an all-day journey, and all of a sudden their hearts are awakened. It's nighttime. They try to get Jesus to stay, saying, hey, the day is spent. It, you know, you can stay here. It's not safe to travel back. Now they turn back and go back towards Jerusalem. Which means no matter how far you've gone, one mile, two miles, seven miles, 50 miles, when Jesus meets you, repentance is turning back and going to where he showed you to go to. And that's where they find themselves. That the resurrection makes all things new. He took the paintbrush, Jesus. When you realize the enemy in the garden had a paintbrush, God had this amazing, beautiful portrait. He wanted the entire world to look like the Garden of Eden. Perfect peace, perfect joy, the presence of God. He wanted to be perfect. But the enemy grabbed a hold of that paintbrush from Adam. And he began to paint smudges all over this beautiful creation God had created. He painted shame over Adam and Eve. He painted guilt over Adam and Eve. So much so that they hid from God instead of going to God. And the enemy thought he had won. And God gave a promise in Genesis 3. He said, no, no, the Son of Man is going to crush the head of the serpent. What he was saying was, the enemy thought he was painting on your life. He was painting guilt. He was painting shame. He's painting death. He's painting sorrow. He's painting failure. He thought he had Jesus. He thought he had changed the narrative of redemption by painting Jesus into the grave. Little did he know he was falling right into God's plan. And at the resurrection, Jesus spent three days in death in the grave, I also believe in hell, preaching to the captives. He's there, and it's like he takes the key to death, hell, and the grave. But he also takes the paintbrush from the enemy. He says, no, no, you've been painting long enough. You've been painting shame over my people. You've been painting guilt over my people. And it's time for me to paint a new narrative. It's time for me to take those ugly smudges and to paint something beautiful. It says this in Romans 8. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called and according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many, many brothers. What that means is no matter what smudges we have in our life, God can redeem those smudges to paint happy little trees. 
And the painting he's trying to paint on our lives is not one of just us, it's one of Jesus. He wants every one of us to look just like Jesus. And the resurrection is the changing of the artist of our lives. It changes. It's not just one rough patch that defines you. It's the bigger picture that defines you. It's not one season that defines you. It's what God can do through that season to redefine you. For he is the artist. We are his canvas. Our lives are his paintbrush. And at some point, we have to give up the paintbrush and give it back to the artist. It says this in Ephesians 2.10. or 2, 10. It says, for we are God's masterpiece. Look at your neighbor and say, I'm a masterpiece. Now tell your spouse, did you hear what he said? I'm a masterpiece. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago, meaning he redeems his painting back. For some of us, that means you need to start over. That maybe over your life, your identity has been painted failure, mistake, sinful, divorcee, adulterer, alcoholic, addicted, whatever it was, and you have this canvas that you're ashamed of. The beauty of the resurrection is you get to take your shame and it gives you his innocence and purity. He washes you or paints you with his blood. And what used to be black and gory and shameful and all these things now becomes as white as snow. And he starts to paint a new identity upon you where you're no longer identified by who you were. Now you're identified by who he is. He gives you a new purpose. He begins to paint the end goal, the end result of who you are. And you live a lifestyle of trusting him as he paints the picture. But the problem with painting is you can't judge the painting until the artist is finished. And so many times, we try to judge the painting. We try to judge others by the season they're in, whether they're letting the artist do his job. And so today I'm praying that you'll get the bigger picture of the resurrection by letting the artist do their job. is written 
Jesus Christ, my living hope. Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory. has spoken and I am forgiven the king of kings calls me his own beautiful savior I'm yours forever Jesus Christ my
What if Evan, who is, is painting for us, what if he just stopped right at the middle? Like you wouldn't have known what the picture was going to be. You wouldn't have known. You wouldn't be able to walk it out. You wouldn't have seen it correctly. But when you allow the painter to finish, you get to see the full picture. And redemption is not something that ended in the day of atonement in the Old Testament. It didn't even end at the resurrection. It finally ends when Jesus returns to set up his kingdom here on earth. And so just, I want you to bow your heads. Everybody in the room, just real quick, bow your heads and close your eyes. And this is, there's three types of people in this room. I'm not going to have you come forward. There's three types of people, and I just want everybody to respond so that we, we don't get hard hearts by not responding to the Word of God. But there's three groups of people in this room. There are some of you in this room that have trusted Jesus as the painter of your eternal life. You've been walking with him. You've trusted him. You've depended on him. You've been living for him. It's time for you to put his artwork on display which means it's time for you to show the world what the resurrection looks like. Just as these two, Cleopas and his friend, they journey back and they start telling, he is risen, he is risen. It's time for you to begin living a life that shows people that he is risen. It's that you, you say, you know what, I, I really need to, God has redeemed me, God has given me a story, God has changed my life, but I need to start taking advantage of the opportunities of the people I'm around, my family, or maybe my friends, to show them what the resurrection looks like through my life. For that, you just slip your hand up real quick. Thank you all in the room. Second group of people are those of you that have trusted in Jesus but got some blemishes, some flaws on your canvas. And so it is because you've, you've trusted, he's given you a new canvas, but maybe you're holding on to the brush yourself, or maybe you're trying to force him to paint what you want him to paint. In doing so, maybe there's some strokes that or seasons or moments of brokenness, or maybe seasons of failure, or maybe seasons or maybe sin. Today is the day you let go of the brush and let Jesus redeem those strokes to turn them into something beautiful. I don't know what your strokes, maybe, maybe it's strokes of sexual sin, maybe it's strokes of, of failure, maybe it's strokes of divorce, maybe it's strokes of greed, maybe it's strokes of hatred or anger, maybe it's strokes of failed business. When it's these strokes, today's the day you let go of the paintbrush and let Jesus redeem them for something new. If that's you, every head is bowed, every eye closed, just slip your hand up right where you are. Thank you all over the room. Let me put them down. Third group is this. Maybe your canvas has been painted on by your mom and dad when they were bringing you up. Maybe they spoke shameful things over you, or maybe they spoke death over you. Or maybe you've gone through seasons of life where people have just painted flaws and mistakes and failure on your canvas. And you're ashamed of your canvas. You feel guilty of your canvas. And maybe your heart has been burning this morning, much like Cleopas and them, as the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you and saying, today's an age for a fresh start, a new beginning, where you exchange your canvas for a new canvas. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, you're no longer the old you, you're a new creation in Christ when you make that exchange. You say, well, pastor, I, you know, I haven't been really going the right direction. You know, I haven't been really serving God. I haven't been really doing the right things. And, you know, maybe you're going the wrong direction. Or maybe you met God before and you've turned your back on him. Guess what? Cleopas and his friend did the exact same thing. They had known Jesus. They rejected Jesus. They doubted Jesus. They'd been called by Jesus. They turned away and walked away from their calling. 
When the other disciples were in Jerusalem, they were going the opposite direction. Maybe you've been going the opposite direction. The good news is Jesus will meet you right where you are. And he said, you know what, Pastor, today's the day. I need a fresh start. I need a new beginning. I need a clean plate. I need a clean canvas so God can write something new on my life. That's you. I'm not going to have you come forward. I'm not going to have you. Everybody's already saying, I'm not going to have you do anything. Just slip your hand up right where you are. He said, the Holy Spirit's speaking to me this morning. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. So today's the day for my fresh start. Today's the day I get a new canvas. No matter what anybody else has spoken over my life, today's the day that my heavenly Father begins to speak in my life. Anybody else? I'm going to pray for those of you who just raised your hand in just a second. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is walking with Jesus from the day you meet him to the day you die. And we want to help you walk that through. But let's all pray together. Father, we thank you for your mercy, for your grace. We thank you for your plan. We thank you for your redemptive power. We thank you for resurrection hope. And Father, right now, for every person in this room, Father, those who want to put the resurrection on display, I pray you give them a boldness and a passion to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Father, those who have had situations in their life, Father, they've grabbed a hold of the paintbrush, I pray today they trust you, they yield to you. And Father, those who said, you know what, I need to exchange my life, my canvas for a new one. I pray right now there's a supernatural spiritual exchange that takes place. As they confess their sin, as they repent of their artwork, Father, you give them your artwork. As they go back to Jerusalem, Father, I pray you redeem their lives, you redeem their stories, you redeem their purpose, you redeem their identity, all for your glory. In Jesus' name and all God's people said.